0: Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Colm. And I'm Louise Palenker. On Media Path, we take a topic and we drill down on it. We talk with an expert. We talk about films and books and TV shows that are sort of built around that topic. And this time we're continuing to take our look at the American fascination with true crime. And we truly have the quintessential voice of the true crime genre with us today. He's been with Dateline NBC since 1995, which is, incidentally, NBC's longest running primetime show. He's done a really engaging podcast that we're going to talk about called The Thing About Pam. And just once today, I want to hear him go, The Thing About Pam. (laughs) It'll be fantastic. Uh, This is a Really, a not to be believed true crime story with so many head spinning twists and turns. We hope we can entice you to binge it as we did. He's covered stories all around the world like 9-11 and Columbine and Tiananmen Square and the Manson Murders, the Oscar Pistorius trial, his gorgeous wife, Suzanne. He's got six lovely children. I'm happy to welcome my friend Keith Morris. And Keith, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Rich thank you. Did, uh, awfully nice to see you again. Truly. It's
0: great to see you, my friend. And hear your voice.
1: Yes. Which, <laughs> that's right. of course, I've been doing for a long, long time. But, um, yes, it's... Well, uh, compared a... to your voice, all of our
0: voices are going to sound pre adolescent
1: Oh, that's not
0: <laughs> So, listen, I, I want to start with this, because I, I mentioned the Oscar Pistorius trial, which really interested me at the time, because uh-huh. this of Fresh People's Memory, was the South African Olympian. He was a double amputee, and he sort of engaged the world's attention because of sure. what he had overcome. But he also shot his girlfriend.
1: Well, I right. have to say a He did, course. but the question is, of course, to the
0: intended, yes, I'm so sorry. Right. The, the story uh, was the classic pitting of fame against the criminal justice system. And we're used to that in the United States with the O.J. trial and others, but this was in South Africa. So how was it to cover?
1: It was uh, it was fascinating. But all of South Africa was absolutely glued to that trial. There were huge crowds. It was a little like O.J. Uh, tremendous crowds even outside the courthouse. They packed the courthouse every day, Um, and there, there was nothing else to watch on television but this incredibly absorbing uh, story that everybody had an opinion about, but nobody could say for sure exactly what happened. Uh, Even the judge seemed to go back and forth, very confused. Um, And and a highly, highly regarded judge and prosecution team and defense attorney. So everybody was on their game. But what is a
0: story? It, it was an amazing fall from grace, though, because this man had captured the world's attention and did this wonderful bit of PR for his country and for humanity in general. And then this happened. It was just it was so fascinating, to. to
1: well, be. and then we began to dig into it. And uh, what uh, they weren't hearing in court was the backstory of Oscar and his, uh, you know, his main girlfriends over the previous few years. Um, his uh, his fascination with wealth, with fancy cars, um, with hanging out with the wrong kind of crowd, um, then that incredible jealousy that was bubbling away in his in his story, uh, jealousy involving a former girlfriend who was, you know, he was trying to get rid of, but at the same time didn't want her to go and have a relationship with anybody else. All the usual kind of. Tawdry, uh human behaviors that tend to you know, exist behind these uh, crimes that we hear about.
2: So what was the outcome, remind us?
1: Well, the initial, uh, it, it, and, and this is where we ended our reporting at the time we did it, the uh, judge in the case, um, having heard having heard all, having, and I'll give you a little bit more background in the trial, there was forensic evidence that showed uh, it it pretty well nailed him, frankly. But there were also neighbors who heard Reva, his his current girlfriend, screaming, and then a gunshot, and then her screaming some more, and then another gunshot, and then her scream dies out, and then a final gunshot. Um, And and then in court, he tried to tell them that he didn't know who was behind his bathroom door. He just was afraid of a potential intruder, and so he fired his gun three or four times. Um, And nobody thought the judge would believe him. It was pretty unbelievable, right? But she did, Uh, or at least she felt that the state had not proved that he fired with intent. So she found him guilty of something that was sort of the equivalent of manslaughter, I guess. She sentenced him to five years in prison, but uh, but ruled that as he had already been uh, in and out of prison, Awaiting trial, um, and had a family who you know could keep him at home. Um, she sentenced him to one year of home confinement, basically. So, but just before he was to get out, this was after we reported the story. The state, this is something they can do in South Africa. The state appealed both the result and the sentence, and upon reflection, the appeals uh, panel of judges increased his guilty, uh, declared that he was guilty of murder, that they got it wrong in the trial, and they increased his sentence to 13 years in prison. So he is there now, and uh, he's due to be, uh, he could be paroled as early as I want to say next year, I think, possibly as late as 2023, but uh, pretty fairly
0: soon. What was the public reaction to the increase in the sentence?
1: I think that the public was, uh, and, and I wasn't in South Africa when this occurred, but uh, based on the reaction earlier, I can only assume, and from you know, our contacts there were suggesting this, that, that it was felt that that was probably the right thing to do.
2: How often does Dateline play a role in crime sol- solving itself?
1: Not very often. We try not to. I, it, it, you know, we, we're, we're here to tell stories, not to stories different than they otherwise would be. There's that whole, as you know, because you do stories about media, the question is how much does the media influence the event it's trying to cover? And we don't want to influence those events. We usually try to wait until there's some sort of um, resolution of the story before we we, uh, put it on the air. Uh, But there have been some cases, which we have put on, and knowing that they might have an influence, and, and those are usually cases my at least in my experience where it's clear there has been some real miscarriage of justice and you want to do a story about what it appears to be a miscarriage of justice um, and we you know we again we follow all the same rules about reporting we, we talk to everybody and we make sure we cover all the bases but um, but but we have told those stories and whether or not the story itself contributed to some you know action in the case, actions occurred and produced a different result.
0: And when we talk about your podcast, we're going to talk about an involuntary um, action that your group, your producer, specifically oh, Academy, yeah. involved. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But is, is there one case in your 25 years that you're most proud of in sort of advancing the cause of justice? Where the enlightenment you brought to the case may have helped get the proper oh. outcome.
1: <laughs> well, oh, there, there have been so many stories, um, and you know, I guess when it comes down to it, the ones that I get sort of feel somewhat proud up are are the are, are the ones where it appeared that the state got it wrong, and we were able to go and have a a good look, and, and in the end. The decision changed and somebody was released after all and, and freed because, at least in part, possibly it's something that we did, or at least, you know, we were reporting it along the way and it didn't hurt. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, and as you mentioned
0: yeah. in your podcast, it's very seldom that, uh, that uh, retrials happen where. Uh,
1: yeah. Uh, appeals, court, appeals courts are, are generally pretty reluctant to have a trial once a jury has made a decision. That jury's decision, you know, they want it to stand. The whole system really depends on on what a jury decides. Unless there's some error in what uh, you know what the judge did, or you know, some error in what the officials of the court did in the original trial, the appeals court just usually just leaves things as they are, and. It's even if it, it, if it can be demonstrated that somebody is um, provably innocent of the crime for which they were convicted, it often takes a couple of several decades before it finally, you know, very very slowly works its way through the system and gets up to a habeas corpus that heard from some higher court, and then the process can still be very gradual before somebody finally gets out. So. It's quite a process.
2: But something similar happened in in the thing about Pam, where I don't right. want to give away too much if people are about to enter into this extraordinary podcasting experience. Mm-hmm. So I'll let I'll let you uh, tell the backstory, Keith.
1: Oh, boy. Well, let me see telling a backstory about the thing about Pam.
2: <laughs> there are many things about Pam, P.S. There are
1: many things about Pam. And uh, in, in our uh, explorations of, her uh, life and times, we discovered that she had uh, been for years and years and years uh, doing things that perhaps wouldn't live up to people's uh, expectations of moral behavior. If I can put it as mildly, <laughs>
0: that's a good good way to put it. Wow,
2: well, you should speak at her but, funeral. That was really it's <laughs> about as well as anyone's going to yeah. do on Pam.
0: But uh, she was
1: a, she was ex- very good at um, doing bad things and then making sure somebody else um book for them or at least was blamed for them in some way or other. And that's how this story came to be. And um uh and, and is continuing by the way it's not over yet. Wow.
0: And the the interesting thing about it is that this person, this Pam Hop is her mm-hmm. name. And I I highly recommend this is really a wonderful mystery. Uh she was the last person to see three different people alive, yes. and all that that implies, yeah. and they wandered through three different trials, and still, as you say, Keith, justice has not necessarily been served.
1: It's not. It's not finished yet, and um, I, I'm not sure it ever will be. In one of the cases, um, a certain person fell off a person who was very close to this man fell off fell off a balcony. Um, uh, in her old folks' home and fell down three stories and landed on the ground and was killed. Uh, so we found it very strange that she would go flying through a metal balcony railing. Um, you know, it's your typical metal balcony railing. That flimsy, we thought. So we, we went and tested it, and we, um, we used those very same kind of railings, um, actually a little tiny bit thinner, so they wouldn't be as strong as the ones that were used. And we, we ended up putting, um, I think at the end, well over a thousand pounds of weight slamming down on these tines of the, of, the, uh, of the balcony railings, and they held firm, they didn't break. We got an expert who was able to tell us this balcony would not have broken the way it did, bent and broken railings everywhere, Unless it was hit with something extremely powerful, uh, and supposedly this elderly lady uh, crashed through the balcony when she happened to, you know, fall over on her, you know, just fall over. So clearly, anyway, that's a little bit maybe too in depth to be. It's hard to know what I'm talking about.
0: No, it's interesting. We want to entice people to listen to it. It's really interesting. But so that's
1: that's that's the kind of uh, that's that, that's the part that's fun about. It. Telling these stories is that you were able to take the material that you can know that's in evidence and then go out and experiment with it and see if it makes any sense.
2: Well, you've spoken to a a lot of people who have made the decision that climbing is the best next step in their their life events. And you've sat with those people and had conversations. Do Do you notice any parallels in the personality types that get themselves... This deeply involved in uh, misdeeds.
1: Yes, in many cases there are. You see the same story over and over again. And uh, I would say in in our line of work, the story you do see most often um, is uh, is spousal abuse. Is um, you know that's a very very serious problem. I suppose it always has been. Maybe we're just seeing more of it now. But. men who, and it's usually, it's almost always men, but men who uh, are, do very bad things to the women who love them, uh, who control them, who will gaslight them, who gradually lead them down a path of abuse, and then wind up killing them. Uh, When the woman finally decides it's time to break free and leave, you've seen that pattern happen again and again and again. Um, You know, the woman will disappear and, you know, six months later, we'll wind up. They'll, they'll find her in a river bottom or something. And usually, it's one of those kind of issues.
2: Well, when they sit in in conversation with you, do you notice that they're attempting to use those psychological techniques on you in conversation?
1: Yes, absolutely. And it, it, because most often there is a, I mean, I hate to make generalizations. Every every story is different. But but boy, you run into that. Personality so often of the person who thinks he's smarter than everybody else in the room, and uh, clearly has a controlling personality and is trying to control the conversation and trying to uh, try to manipulate whoever happens to be sitting in front of them. And in that case, it might be me. But and this, you know, women do the same thing, just far, far fewer of them, and they're far fewer. Cases of them, I and the method that they use tends to be quite different than methods menus. And I can tell you this: they're also very similar to one another. So that I don't, I should laugh, but um, I can't. I think we, Dave, we've done something like eight or nine stories about. Um, women who have killed their significant others using antifreeze of all things to the point where the people making antifreeze thought that this is not good because it used to taste just sweet like sweet tea or something so they changed the formulation so it not taste awful wow. which is a good thing um, that,
2: that antifreeze that. is now less delicious
0: <laughs> <laughs> imagine that Wheezy, uh, your your question was great about being manipulated by whoever you're interviewing. And about that, there was another interesting fact that came out during this case. And again, Keith, we we don't want to give too much away. But the man who was originally found guilty in the first trial, it was telling that his attorney allowed him to do his interview with you Uh without his presence, without the attorney being present, which is often a sign that there's no lying or manipulation going on there. He's telling you nothing but the truth.
1: Exactly. And, you know, so, you know, they're going in. Also, he's a very smart attorney. And um, you have to keep that in mind, too, when you're talking to somebody. You, there, are, there, are, <laughs> there are attorneys who, who are very good at planning out what, what they're going to do and sometimes will, will allow you more latitude than you otherwise would expect to have for a reason. But in this case, it was pretty clear it was as it was, frankly, from the time we looked at the, the interrogation tapes of this fellow, that they've made an error. And uh, it was a bad mistake. So I can see why the attorney would say, yeah, go ahead, doctor. Mm-hmm.
0: So your, your producer, Kathy, who has been with Dateline yeah. for 25 years, got involuntarily involved in this case. And again, we don't want to give yeah. it away but 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 her name was used and then after her name was used it came back to play in some of the machinations that this Pam uh, did uh in the second or third of her crimes is that the mm-hmm. first time that you or anyone on your staff has been sort of pulled in to the case itself
1: the, the, the attempt to manipulate is is pretty common but but this was uh this was a step Beyond that, and it was, it was, um, I mean, the deep, yes. I, I mean, I, I hate to almost hear, I don't want to give too much away, but the manipulative nature of this particular person went way beyond anything that we had experienced before. And uh, and uh, yeah. Kathy had been covering her case for some years by then, and so this woman knew Kathy, she'd seen her race, court events and so on. Kathy had been calling her on the phone repeatedly asking for interviews. And the two would chat on the phone, off the record, usually. Um and uh but always this woman would turn down the opportunity to be interviewed. And so they they knew about each other. They knew very well about each other. And it was it it was quite a surprise nevertheless to Kathy when uh, coming out of a court hearing one day, this woman, um, you know, said, "Say hi to Kathy." Um, Kathy did not be there that day, and then uh, used Kathy in a way which I've never seen before. I won't tell you what, but uh. it was it was uh, devious and inventive at the same time.
2: Have you ever felt uh, just a little frightened in the presence of of? somebody who's been accused of a, of a horrible crime
1: no and um the the thing is they're always on best behavior the because they, they, uh, they want to show that they're innocent right they're just pure as the driven snow everybody is wrong when they say they did that, that terrible thing and really they're quite a nice person so they tend to be quite a nice person in, in their presence there have been some cases where there was just no getting around they're really really terrible things that these people did. And, um, then there's, it, there's a lot of excuse making. One guy I remember who had, I can't believe it. Yeah. I, I talk about this stuff and I'm like, wait a minute, I do this for a living." <laughs> but I spoke to this one fellow who had, uh, with a friend of his, who well, I think that they'd been involved in a, in a, some kind of weird sexual relationship, he and this other man. And, uh, they, had been pulling prostitutes off the street sex workers, I should say, and, um, and killing them and putting them in garbage dump- dumpsters and the, you know, the garbage trucks would come by in the morning, unload, the dumpsters, not see a thing and take them out to the landfill. And, if the, and the landfill operators had not seen anything either, because why would they? And so, You know, within a few days or weeks, these people were buried under feet or or yards or a lot of dirt, and their bodies were never found. But the the person, one of the people responsible for these really heinous, heinous acts, uh, agreed to be interviewed and was trying to sort of give me all kinds of reasons why he would have done this. And and his excuses were, were... Pathetic, but I remember at one point he said, "You know, it's really the state of California's fault because I was on I was on parole. They should have made sure that I was wearing an ankle bracelet, but they didn't check that ankle bracelet sufficiently, or or they didn't make sure there was a battery in it. And so I was able to go and get these women and do what I did to them.
0: You made me do this.
1: You made me do it. Yeah."
0: Well, so there are a couple of instances, Keith, in the in the Pam Hupp trial, a series of trials, mm-hmm. where where it was pointed out that maybe the police and the investigators uh, dropped the ball a couple of times. Do you see that in in, in a lot of the cases you investigate? I have to say that I don't
1: think as much anymore. It, 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 we were seeing it much more often years ago when. Um, uh, this tunnel vision would develop early on in investigation. I have a feeling, and I don't—I'm not a—you know—I'm not. Don't take part in any police training, but th- th- it seemed we were going through a period of time where where forensic evidence maybe wasn't as strong as it is these days. It wasn't DNA available all the time, and and, and uh, we weren't finding that people you know were wrongly convicted as much as we have done recently, and the. The idea that you could get somebody to confess, if you got somebody to confess within the first couple of days after this this crime occurred, your case would be solved. And once that confession is on the record, it's practically impossible for the person who did the confessing to get off the charge. So they clear cases, lots of guilty verdicts. But we kept running into cases where it was pretty obvious that some a malleable gullible person after many many hours in the interrogation room had simply you know finally said okay i don't even know what happened anymore i i give up i'll confess if you'll let me go home <laughs> expecting somehow to be able to go home to mama and that would happen so i, mean, I can't remember where the thread was there but that so we used to see that um and those, to me, were automatic stories to do because many of those people were still in prison, and many
0: still are today, right.
1: for that matter. But, uh, but it that's doesn't... what
0: was alleged to have happened in the Central Park Five case. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That they wore these kids down and right. let them go home.
1: Yep, exactly what happened. And, you know, if you sit down and watch an interrogation uh, involving that kind of uh, coercion, and it'll go on for, you know, eight or 10 or 12 or 20 hours. And you watch the nature of it. And the, and, and usually now there's video. And you see the sort of two investigators who are trying to get at it through a confession, you know, encroaching on this person in a threatening way in a little room that's kept very cold. So they're really freezing and they can't sleep and they're tired and they... In some cases, we're on medication that they have run out of, and so um, they don't feel well. And uh, and it's just the constant drumbeat of confess or you'll be executed. You'll I'll watch you fry. And I know you did this. And here I'm going to show you how you did this. You can agree to tell me yes, that's how I did it. But that's the only thing you can do. You can't say I didn't do it. Or if you do say I didn't do it, you can say it 600 times. I'm still not going to believe you. So that was a problem. But I, as I say, I don't, I don't think that's happening.
2: Well, I want to uh, ask you an important question, Keith Morrison. Uh, binging Dateline is a popular obsession. And I know that you have mixed feelings regarding tragedy as entertainment. But can we learn from Dateline? What are your top Keith Morrison murder avoidance tips?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's an easy one Okay. if you're with somebody and it doesn't feel right it probably isn't uh, if your daughter if your sister if somebody in your family is with a um, and you can see that they're being gaslighted you can see they're being controlled um, and they don't know how to do anything about it um, help that person Pay attention to that, and um, and usually, if a woman in a situation—not usually—I don't know because murders are very rare. So, that's, <laughs> but if a person is in that situation, frequently it would be wise to offer help to get out of it, because um, it can be—it's the one of the most dangerous places for a, a young woman between the age of eighteen and about thirty-five to be is in an abusive relationship when she wants to get out and when she declares her intention to do so.
0: That's a good point. Dateline has given legs to uh, some national trials uh, and national stories like Dirty John that uh-huh. turned into this sort yeah. of thing on Netflix. How... Yeah. How do you feel about that, Keith? That that that's I think that's the greatest example so far of how they took the ball that you put in the air and ran with it.
1: And I, I I wish I could claim credit for having been the the first one to put it in the air, but actually that was a series in in the L.A.
0: Times. It was the L.A. Times, the written stuff. But that's, I mean, broadcast, right. you were the one. Yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> we 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 did that on television, and then the um, the podcast followed, and and it, the story only got bigger and uh that we did it again on Dayline and for the second time i think we've, we've redone it now with because we kept following the story back into it in this man's past and uh, uh and then it became this netflix series so it's it's quite a story any story like that with that kind of yeah. man bites dog weirdness and, and uh, strange things happening uh, these days. will have a life, a life of its own. will go on. There isn't. I, I mean, I know, Josh McElwain has some theories about why people are so fascinated with true crime. I'm not. I, I, I'm not sure anybody can really know. Except it's 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 it. Maybe we just have to we feel like we have to know what's out there, what the boundaries of human behavior are and what, if there's something scary, we better pay attention to it.
2: Well, I think we want to know what, you know, what could go wrong so that we can avoid it. I think that's one thing. Another thing is I think humans have always been captivated by other people's dramas. Uh, You know, we slow down to look at an accident or, you know, whatever. A lot of shows that we're obsessed with have a ton of violence in them and People make these shows and people watch these shows. So there's something in us that's primal that's attracted to that.
0: Exactly, yeah. I mean, and you remember being in local news, that was the single biggest question we would ask. Well, I used to watch all the time, but it's so gruesome. I can't Hmm. watch anymore. Why don't you do some good news? Well, they've tried to, and as a matter of fact, the station that you and I both work for, Channel 4, did a pilot called Good News, and it was nothing but positive stories, and they gave it two test- uh, airings, and they tanked miserably because there's this element of human nature that is yeah. drawn. It's sort of there by the grace of God, go I thing and it's peering through the spaces in your fingers. People just are fascinated by it. It's the same with yeah. freeway chases, a ridiculous waste of time, but five times the normal number of people watch them and they don't go away till they're over. So the guy's face planted in the middle of the freeway it's the it's a conundrum, but that's the way people are.
1: Yeah, it's the strangest thing. Um, those, those great KNBC days. I, you know, the first I must tell a story. The, the when I uh, I was invited to uh, go to KNBC. I think it, uh, John Rohrbeck was the general manager yep. then, of course. And it was late 1985 when um, he, he said, "Why don't you come be an anchor on the station?" I, um, I had been working on this C B C in Canada.
0: You were you were the, you were the Peter Jennings of Canada.
1: Don't don't say <laughs> well uh, that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's kind of all on that path. And then going to work at KMBC was quite a revelation because as you say, if it bleeds it leads, or that idea. And um, you know, a very, very commercial operation. Um which was quite an eye-opener. But the very first thing that um, that <laughs> Warbeck said to me when we met and we were, began to discuss this was, there's this guy we have on television, he's a comedian, he's not even a weatherman, but I knew he'd be a great weatherman. And we we developed this um, saying this, uh, we could use and put it up on billboards, Fritz said it would be like this, and it's been the most successful thing we've ever done. <laughs> I don't know if you
0: heard, but you'll appreciate this. The side story to that ad campaign was it was relatively new, and they had it on 500 billboards in Southern California, and it was just it was a blue background with like this bold English font. Fritz said it would be like this, and about a month into the campaign, we got written up in a conservative Orange County newspaper. Yeah, and it was an editorial that said, "Finally, NBC." shows its true liberal colors (laughs) out of the closet, because at the time, Carter was running with Fritz Mondale, and this billboard was an endorsement of Fritz Mondale, so people were sending me this article, so I autographed a picture and sent it to the executive editor of the Orange County, whatever that thing was, and said, thank you. It was interesting.
1: We have these, uh, you know, people jumping to conclusions about your politics. It's been around
0: for a while. I know. Let me ask you one final question about the uh, podcast, Keith, because a lot of people who are true crime enthusiasts will listen to it and be fascinated. There are a couple of terms that come up in the podcast mm-hmm. that are fascinating but not familiar, I think, to the general public. One was the idea of an Alfred plea. Oh, yeah, there's something this woman did. Explain how that works.
1: An offered plea is uh, a lot of similarities with a no contest. You know, in in other words, um, you are not prepared to plead guilty. Um, You're saying to the court, I didn't do this, and I'm not going to, you know, appear before a judge and say I did it, and I'm not going to plead guilty. This crime, but I recognize that if I go on trial, it's likely a jury will convict me. And so there is a kind of a deal that can be made in there. It's not always offered, it's not always available, but when sometimes when a prosecutor recognizes there's really not much more we can do, they'll make that offer um, of an offered plea so that you can you're 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 sort of pleading guilty. It's just good for your own ego because the general well, public
0: thinks you're guilty.
1: Right. It allows that it allows everybody to move on. So that then, um, I've seen it more often in cases where somebody who is uh, demonstrably not guilty uh, can't persuade the state that that's the case, and wow. they keep trying and trying and trying, and finally a, a, a DA will say, "Okay, well, just you know, take an offered plea, and we'll let you out of prison. You can go back to your life." And they have to make that decision because they, that means a conviction for murder will follow a person around for the rest of their lives. They go, you know, stuck to them. And also and shows the downside of an Alfred plea for somebody who, who agrees to it. You, It is as if you have pleaded guilty, but they're letting you out of prison, but they're letting you go on with your life. Uh, and, and that's generally what an Alfred plea will be.
0: And it could get into that thing with the disparity between the rich and the poor and your ability to pay for an adequate defense or a big defense. Yes, a defense that it would require to to, you know, fight the case. Sure. And one other term, and you actually talked about this earlier, which is the Moody motion, uh, asking for a new trial. And you said that that happened to be something that came up in this case. Um,
1: Yeah, it's uh, a it's um, you see it coming up every once in a while. It's, It's when New evidence has been discovered that was uh, um, not presented at, I, I, I mean, I get this exactly right, but it's, it wasn't presented at the original trial. It, uh, has is newly discovered evidence, which uh, would contribute uh, you know, substantially to the court's understanding of what really happened. Um, and so an attorney can go and make that presentation and try to persuade a judge that makes it worth opening up the case again. And those very rarely are approved. And I think attorneys try them a lot, but um, there has to be something truly substantive, and it has to meet a a certain legal guideline that um, I can't really explain to you. I'm not an attorney, Uh, but it's been it it frequently is tried, very rarely succeeds.
2: Well, I'd like to switch gears just a little bit, because I read uh, when you Google Keith Morrison, as many uh, will do of an evening, uh, there's a GQ article. And in the article, it describes that you first saw your wife on a piece of videotape. And huh? and I would like to know that story. And because it doesn't go on to explain exactly how you went from seeing her on videotape to marrying her. <laughs> there's a gap in the story. <laughs>
0: fill it in for Zane, us. a beautiful woman. So be careful. We've
1: been together forty years now, but she was. uh, I was at the time. I was working for a network called CTV in Canada. This was in the late seventies, and uh, it. I was interested in politics, so I I I anchored the weekend news, and during the week. I could report on basically whatever I wanted to report on. And increasingly, I was gravitating toward covering Canadian politics to Ottawa. Um, And by the way, here's how old I am. Um, Our our reporter in Washington, who had been covering the Watergate uh, case for many, many months and just was exhausted. When Nixon left office, he said, I gotta take some time off. I gotta get out of here for a while. So I was sent down there Cover the White House for, I don't know, six, eight months, something like that, uh, which was a lot of fun. But I, so I got to do that kind of thing. And I, I was one weekend um, I was uh, taking in reports from various reporters around the country, and one of them was a reporter based in Ottawa. He was doing a story on the endless arguments between the, the federal government and the provincial governments over a new constitution for the country and, and you know who should sh- the power sharing all kinds of really boring stuff um to most people but it was an intense issue and uh, as kind of wallpaper for the story to give some video to it our reporter uh showed the prime minister walking down a hallway toward a meeting with the premiers and there by his side walking along just behind him was this woman and <laughs> I kept playing the tape back because I, I thought I knew all the players in Ottawa but I'd never seen this woman before and I didn't know who she was and uh, so <laughs> I, I couldn't stop thinking about it so later I called a friend in Ottawa and said who is that person and, and that friend said well it's she's uh, so and so's girlfriend and I, my heart's in my shoes and I thought that's the end of that. But um, not to give too much away because you know one shouldn't. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't. I wound up based in Ottawa and one thing led to another. And there was an election campaign. And we were on a campaign playing together for quite a while. And um, yeah, we've been together ever since.
2: So when you first approached her, what was your opening line?
1: <laughs> I don't. You know, I think. I don't remember, I don't remember. I know that it didn't, it wasn't easy. I, I, she didn't understand that I was that interested and, and frankly smitten from a distance. And I invited her to lunch, I think, and she uh, looked at me quizzically like, why would you invite me you know. And uh, so I kept doing it. Eventually she uh, relented and, and we made an appointment to have, lunch together in the parliamentary dining room wow. and um, it, it was canceled because it it very dramatic time in Canadian politics, which many of your listeners will probably not know <laughs> what I'm talking about, but there was a confidence vote in the house of commons. Pierre Trudeau, who Suzanne worked for had been the prime minister for a long time. He was defeated in a, in a, Early in 1979, in a national election, um, the fellow who took over, and then Joe Clark, was not governing very, uh, uh, you know, smartly. And about eight months later, there was a confidence motion in the House of Commons, and unexpectedly, he was defeated. So there had to be an election, and um, that interceded. We didn't get to have our lunch, but I got to be on the campaign plan.
2: How do we get that confidence thing here in America? Because I think we're ready to vote. Let's go.
0: You know, I,
1: the parliamentary system is actually a pretty good system. Uh, they really are. Yeah, there's a lot more access to the uh, to the prime minister than there would be to the president, and there is um, it, there, it's uh, you know there are, there. Are
0: Pros and cons to both systems. Do they but, yell back and forth like the British Parliament does? They, they do everything. Yeah, the they, do. It. They, they do. It gets pretty uh, it gets pretty intense
2: sometimes.
0: Wigs or no wigs. wigs? This is good. Louisiana, I want to ask my final question about the podcast, and then you have some ah. other stuff you want to talk more about. Right. Uh, another revelation to me was people's reaction to 911 calls. Yeah, I don't know if it was Kathy that brought this up, your producer, mm-hmm. but it was a really interesting observation because you're, we play them on the news, which I always thought was a gross violation of someone's privacy, although it's public property oh, at that point. And yeah, it, like, is. it makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah. But uh, what, what came out of your podcast was that your initial reaction to what you hear when you hear a 911 call may not be accurate. It might be, Oh, that's really bad acting. Or you say to yourself, that person is too calm. They must be guilty. But what what the, you, you guys discussed in one of the middle episodes was that you can't trust your initial judgment when you hear no. this
1: No. And you know, when we've talked to experienced detectives, who have been through down that road often. They will say, you, you just people, everybody reacts to a situation like that differently. There's just no way to tell whether somebody is reacting, um, you know, there no way. There probably are some ways, but, but how people react to a terrible thing like that is completely unpredictable and certainly doesn't predict guilt or innocence. I remember one case where a man, a man's daughter had been uh, raped and murdered just a couple of Yards down the hall from him, in the middle of the night, in his little house, um, and uh, he called. He woke up in the morning, found her dead, and called nine one one. And he was he was understated. He 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 was monosyllabic, and in uh, fact was, he was in shock. But it sounded like he didn't care to the detective. And so they worked on him and worked on him and worked on him and got a confession out of him after many days of. Uh, Interrogations. Uh, that's one of the you know that sticks with me even today because it did not end well. But, but you can't tell is the point. You know some some people get very very upset and they're just as in as
2: you know. Well, Keith Morrison, let me ask you this important question: Are you aware of an Instagram account called Keith Leans on Things?
0: Uh,
1: uh. I'm afraid. So, yeah. You
2: care to comment? Thank you.
1: It's a, uh, it, yeah, it's a terrible thing. There's a... a back here somewhere. I don't know if I can find it. Somebody sent me this. Um, I don't know if you can see it or not. The oh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to be, uh, to be mean
0: sometimes. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I think um that your delivery and your voice and your character Mm. are 60 to 70 percent of the success first of all dateline is masterful storytelling and oftentimes uh, the general public because these things have been in other media newspapers and local news accounts already know the outcome but Mm. the storytelling is unmatched but within that storytelling your delivery of the material is spectacular. Oh, and yeah, no, you're,
1: just, you're way too nice to me, Chris. No, <laughs> it's
0: it's true. And I, I learned that it's even more profound and effective on the podcast because it's just you and music, which is great. I glad you listen to that podcast. Oh, I, oh yeah, it's fantastic. It's because there are so many twists and turns in this particular case that it's not your yeah. typical three-act play. It's more than that.
1: No, indeed,
0: yeah. Can yeah, to do another one?
1: We are, yeah. We're just trying to decide which one, one, what, which, which among several possibilities we will do. But well, yeah. um,
2: there are probably a lot of folks who watch enough Dateline to go through their lives with your voice in their heads narrating their day. <laughs> so, if you were to narrate your own day, how uh-huh. would that sound?
1: Well, he was luckier than he should have been. <laughs>
0: But he still be by evening. Uh, <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> Very good. What do you still me by evening? <laughs> let me throw let me throw a couple of true crime topics to you out there right. and take your response. Just Lane Maxwell. Oh my. Uh, is Dateline working on that story? Uh you know, I'm not. Um, and I would be
1: surprised if we are just yet, because it is so much. And here's the thing: uh, a story that happens in real time, some big, big dramatic story that plays out on, you know, cable television or on, on the in the internet, and everybody learns about the details as they're happening, tends not to be a great story for us to do, um, because essentially people are living the Dateline story; they're seeing you know, what we would eventually tell them anyway. Um, so unless we can offer something that people really want to know that they can't find out otherwise, uh, we will tend to do something else. There, a story that has been very, uh, the public has been following a lot is, are these, Were these poor kids in Idaho who, uh, went missing the, I don't know. Do you remember that, you know, that story about, uh, um, uh, Chad and, um, oh Lord, I think I'm getting old. I'm forgetting the names, but the, uh, yeah, JJ and Tiley, these two little kids in uh, Idaho, who were the the children of a woman who was uh, in an extremist sect of the Church of Latter Day Saints. Oh, and right, 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 right. They, and her, and her new paramour had predicted the end of the world, and right. uh, they began to do things that nobody should do, based on their own belief that. Um, they had become humans of a higher power and even gods, and that they were beyond sort of human morality, and that there was a, 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 a veil between, um,
0: between our life here on earth and, and the life beyond, and they could go
1: back and forth between the, the, through the veil, and they could send people across to the other side, somehow do so without having committed any sin, so anyway, these kids went missing for the longest time. Everybody was wondering where they were. Police were pretty sure they were dead. And and they turned up in the backyard of, the, of this so-called prophet under six feet of dirt. And um, so they are now facing charges. This was a, it, it played out on social media in kind of real time uh, because it, it took quite a while to, develop, um, but we told, we did that story simply because, uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you, thank you for putting that up. Uh, so we did that story, uh, we've done it three times now, and there's still a tremendous appetite for it because there are so many strange things about this, which uh, some of them appear in social media, and many of them do not, and
0: people seem to want to know. So. Yeah, it's it's that thing that people cannot get their heads around which is parents killing their own kids
1: uh-huh.
0: and yeah. uh, the worst of the stories are the mothers in various ways.
1: Yeah. And there's always, well. always some mental illness. Sounds a really a very sad story behind it. You know, and, and,
0: uh, are, are you, are cool you surprised person. with um, how the true crime documentary format is caught on things like tiger King and of course, dirty John, they turned into a six or seven episode thing on Netflix that, the popularity of these things?
1: I, I have been. Yes, I, I have. And I, you know, it's got to be associated in some way with where we are. Yeah, it's always felt to me like um, we're, we're sort of creatures of our tools. You know, We it's almost like our our technology invents us and not the other way around. Or, or some technological invention will occur and we will employ it. And then in the course of our using it, it will change the kind of creatures we are and the kind of interests we that's an interesting. Um, like, a know, feedback, like, uh, like a feedback loop. car chases, and 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 as soon as they began, as soon as we we saw that the people would watch them, boom, we were doing them all the time. And, and as you say, there was no real news value to them, but they were so engaging that people simply watched to see what was going to happen. And
0: and and, but, and we learned that it was it was like a three act presentation. Sure. If people invested ten or fifteen minutes in the freeway chase, they were going to stay to the end to sort of be satisfied with whatever the right. end was they would never tune out and then we saw this whole social media universe get started like uh chase yeah. fan uh twitter at at chase fan and and when there was a chase on one channel the word would go out and yeah. then people would watch it in droves it's really an interesting phenomenon
1: it is and and, and the uh you know the the, the but we were doing those because it was technologically possible for us to cover those. And then we, you know, the slow chase of O.J. down the freeway. Yeah. We did that and stayed on it for the longest time because, you know, it was technologically possible to do it. And somebody was making money on that technology. So first you get the technology, you get somebody making money on it. And then so people will do whatever,
0: whatever it is they have to do and it will
1: engage people and
0: mm-hmm. they wind up becoming a little different. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, first of all, on a personal level, you were one of the kindest and most engaged persons ever to be involved with and work with in local TV. I always enjoyed our friendship. Second of all, you—you were—you're uh, spectacular to watch on Dateline because it is—I uh, don't want to call it a performance, but your delivery of the material is uh, not to be outdone. I just love it. Here,
1: yeah. boy, again.
0: <laughs> thank you now i'm going to go uh, you're with, welcome uh, easy final thoughts
2: I'm, I'm just so grateful keith that you joined us we're, we're uh oh launching, launching into our our uh, podcast endeavor so glad to
0: talk to you
1: and to meet you for the for the first time and of course i've known fritz for a very long time and and i was very i was so excited when he called me because oh, no, well. you know i miss fritz already and here
0: we are there talking. All right, so you'll He's be back with us next week. Give our best to your family, and thank you so much for thank, seeing thank you. Thank
2: you so much, Keith. This was definitely a, 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 an honor to have you with us. Thank it you. It was
1: it was a ton of fun. Thank you.
2: And this has been Media Path. I am Louise Palenker.
0: I'm Fritz Coleman. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.